We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. You're in a lot of trouble, and maybe it's because... Well, sorry, Canada. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Toronto. And because Philly sucks. I feel like I fear Boston most of all out of any of the Eastern Conference teams. Hello and welcome to the Brew Hoop podcast. I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of brewhoop.com and here to uh, coronate the 50th episode of the Brew Hoop podcast as we don't do anything special and just continue with uh, business as usual. I have Riley Feldman and Kyle Carr as per usual as well. So fellas, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good in honor of the 50th uh, episode, even though I only found out five seconds before you hit the record button that uh, this was the 50th episode. I was out until 1.30 in the morning DDRing it up at a local area, Dave and Buster's. So I am in the right mindset, the right mood, and uh, the right mental energy to really break down everything <laughs> that's going on with Marvin Williams and beyond for the Bucks. Yeah, and I have decided this weekend is a time to watch trashy reality shows and watching something called The Circle, which is basically Big Brother meets Tinder, and it's a competition, and I hate that I love it. Banner weekend for all. Did anyone else play um, DDR and try and like use the DDR mats with their video games to play other games? Did anyone else ever try to do that, and it that failed miserably? Thing. I think I went over to like a friend's house who did it and I immediately left. I'm like, this is not happening. So that was the extent of my DDR Matt to play Call of Duty experience growing up as a teenager. I may have tried like a Guitar Hero controller one time, but for I don't remember what game, but I think it was like a Guitar Hero controller that I tried doing that with. Fair enough. I clearly had far too much time on my hands and was that much more boring friends who wanted to try that stuff. Um, but anyways, something that certainly wound up being a little more boring than I think we all would have hoped uh, was the NBA trade deadline this week for the Bucks. Little bit of chatter this week, but nothing too crazy in terms of uh, reported stuff that the Bucks might have been in on. I think we talked this last week, of course, about how we thought it might be a quiet deadline for Milwaukee. Certainly wound up being that way. No huge moves, I would say, across the league. The D'Angelo Russell for Andrew Wiggins one uh, was pretty big. The Capella move that Houston made with four different teams was uh, interesting just because of all the players that were involved with it, but no giant names moving in that one. But, uh, of course, we zero back in on the Milwaukee Bucks who decide not to make a move at the deadline. Uh, There was reported interest in Markeith Morris. uh, And, of course, we find out later on that they do sign Marvin Williams uh, on the buyout market, decided to waive drug and bender that. But initially, Riley, what what was your takeaway from from Milwaukee basically standing pat uh, at the deadline? Yeah, if we separate the Marvin Williams and the Dragon Bender stuff off, just the trade deadline in general, I think everything that we had said the weeks leading up to, and even like months ahead of time, is it was going to always be difficult to find the right sort of match, especially salary wise, where. You know, it kind of depends on how much they may or may not have known about Marvin Williams's situation. But assuming that they were kind of that was maybe a little bit fluid, the difficulty was always going to be finding enough salary. And in order to do the salary, it was probably going to end up being Ursan. And if you give it to Ursan and either like DJ or Sterling, then you might rob yourself of depth that maybe you're not using right now. 
but could be still theoretically useful in the near future in the playoffs, for example. And so, you know, I, I think I can understand the Bucks feeling comfortable with where they're at, with the roster they have, the difficulty in finding the right kind of deal. Um, I'm sure they weren't reticent about moving the first if the right deal came along. So it's not so much that, but since they kept the pick, now they have the flexibility to either go and use that at the draft and actually draft somebody if they like somebody or try and see if they can package that for another trade right before the draft as well. So there's a lot of different options, a lot of flexibility that they still have. And then we'll get into it as we go here. But the fact that they could then play the buyout market pretty confidently probably also help reinforce the fact that they didn't need to force a trade that they may not have felt comfortable with or if anything wasn't enticing out there. So not too surprising, but um, obviously I think everything ended up pretty well that you get a guy like Marvin Williams without having to pay in the form of, you know, other assets for it. So pretty good overall, even if it was a little bit boring or a little bit of a, a, a fizzle at the uh, trade deadline. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard for us to know how much, I mean, just seemingly how quickly it played out. It certainly seems like they may have had this, this Marvin Williams things potentially in the work while the trade deadline was going on. But of course we can't know that for sure. Uh, but, but Kyle, what was your takeaway uh, given that the Bucks decided not to make a move uh, on the margins to, to shore up any of their depth anywhere at the deadline? I was partially surprised um, more because a guy like Sterling Brown or DJ Wilson was still there I'm sure Horse was trying to shop one or both of those um, around just because Sterling Brown is going to be a restricted free agent. And how much, and we don't know what his value is going to be in the summer. So that's always tough to figure out. And at the same time, you would want to try and make some type of upgrade. But I think when Robert Covington had gotten traded, I don't think there was really a concrete player that would have been an improvement. Maybe Markeith Morris, but at the same time, what are you giving up in that regard? So trying to make a deal was going to be difficult because your most likely trade pieces were Ursan, Sterling, and DJ, and Ursan is still valued in Bud's eyes, while Sterling and DJ have little to no value. So unless you use that Indiana first-round pick, which right now it's looking like it's going to be somewhere in the late teens, early 20s. So how valuable is how much of an asset is that really at the same time? So I think it was just more of the, it depends on what was out there, but it didn't seem like there was much that the Bucks could have done and without, you know, mortgaging their future or making a move that we would have sat here and questioned why they would have done it in the first place. But it is interesting that they still have their first round pick. So now are they going to try and move it at the draft night? Are they going to just keep it? That's something that I'm going to be intrigued about when we get to the summer. Uh, I, I think it's important to talk. We'll talk about what some of the other people uh, around the NBA did as well in the, in the Bucks context in terms of that. But I think we do need to talk about the first round pick. Riley, I know I personally was sitting here last summer. I, I can't recall how, what everyone else's here stance was on it. But I, I was one of those people who was like, I'm okay with the Brogdon move. It makes sense to recoup value. Uh, having a pick like this potentially gets the Bucks, you know, in the door if someone gets a little bit disgruntled with their situation. It gives them a little more leverage to be able to make a move. So I'd like to wait and grade the move uh, until then. Uh, but it, in all reality, um, the the thought process was that they would be able to make a move potentially to help them this year. And the reality is that they they didn't. The, the move that they decided to do was to pick up bit pieces, fill in Brogdon that way. So we're essentially left with the, the first round pick will not be used to help the team this year, which is sort of our thought process going into the year. So 
I don't know how what 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 are your feelings on that at, at that point, given that the Bucks seem to have, have punted on using that as an asset to leverage themselves this year, uh, and kind of contrasting that with what you were saying about, you know, could the Bucks have made a move that maybe we would have maligned, but like, you know, they they needed they felt the need to use the first round pick just because they had it and they wanted to push push the chips in more this year. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think getting Marvin Williams and the fact that we don't know how he looks just yet or, you know, how he's going to look over the coming months, that's what makes evaluating it so difficult because I think I would be right there with you um, where if they had stood pat and then they weren't able to get the kind of buyout guys they were looking for, like if the buyout guys they got weren't that compelling, that might be a problem. But we also... Even like a week ago, we were talking, and I think a lot of people have talked up to the trade deadline. Like, okay, what's the what's the focus piece? What's the one area that the Bucks could really improve? And I think a lot of people agreed for the most part, or at least I think one of the areas of need was what are we going to do about the Urson minutes in case Urson is not going to be compatible in a playoff scenario where the other team kind of just pick on him defensively, and so they went out and they used the buyout market to address that need, which would have been my biggest area of concern. And so I agree that it would have been obviously preferred to use the first round pick, but because they were able to get the buyout guy that they were looking for, and because he fits in so seamlessly with the one area of the rotation where it would have been like, that's I'm a little skeptical of that. You know, I, I think I swing a little bit to the other direction here where yes, it would have been nice. Yes. I think, you know, I, ideally, if you could do the buyout guy and there's also a deal out there where you feel comfortable and say, we've upgraded here, then I would prefer them to push that. But I feel just kind of reading the situation, um, either through reports or just kind of the way that the team has played so far, I'm not sure if they felt the need to or felt that there was going to be a viable situation where they could use that pick and recoup enough value to say, this is us going all in because... You know, given the guys who did move, none of them besides like maybe Robert Covington were super duper compelling or like a great fit. Maybe Markeith Morris might have been, you know, a decent fit as well, given the way he's been shooting from three this year. But there's just not a lot of deals that look like they were out there that were going to make sense to utilize the first round pick. That's not just kind of like selling for pennies on the on the dollar just to use it, you know. So, so I agree with you, and I think that's that's going to be the difficult part about this trade, and it's the difficult part about any trade is you have to give it quite a while to actually see how it shakes out to say who won this, was this a good move, et cetera, et cetera. But I think because of the Marvin Williams get, that reduces my angst or my frustration. And, and to be perfectly honest, once the trade deadline went past, having seen what was out there, I wasn't super upset about it. Like it especially with the trades that happened before seeing what other contenders like Miami had to pay to get Andre Iguodala, for example, um, what, you know, Philly picked up a couple of smaller pieces, you know, there weren't many other moves by other contenders as well that maybe like, Oh, you know, the bucks are really missing out here. They really need to just find something or else essentially. So I think for now I'm okay with it. We'll see what they do come draft time. But you know, if they, did the analysis said there's nobody out there that's going to help us now. Maybe this helps us out in the future. If Giannis signs again, you know, great. So I, I'm not too upset about it yet. We'll have to give it like another year to really figure it out. Well, I, I I'm interested because I was just listening to 
you know, and I don't necessarily always agree agree with him, but I was like listening to, to Nate Duncan. He called the Bucks one of the biggest losers of the trade deadline, and I, I think that seems overblown. But like, for example, the kind of all-in move you're talking about, that doesn't feel super all-in to me, but maybe it's the kind of move that they should have made because it's all about this year and trying to win a championship this year is, I think, the closest corollary, Kyle, is the, the Marcus Morris move. I mean, I think the Bucks probably could have gotten him if they were interested and had a better package than the Clippers sending their pick, you know, they could have packaged, maybe it's Urson and, and Wilson plus the indie pick or whatever, if they wanted Marcus Morris, but um, that it doesn't feel like a move that would fit what the bucks want to do. And I also think uh, I'm really curious. I, I think there's probably some trepidation on their part in terms of the chemistry uh, and bringing someone like Marcus Morris in to, to disrupt what they have going here too. Yeah, I definitely agree on the chemistry side. I, because I know last year Yana said that this team is doing well because they don't have any assholes, and Marcus Morris is 100% an asshole. So that would not have helped Milwaukee's chemistry in that aspect. And, yeah, maybe they could have used that indie pick to get someone like Marcus Morris, but uh, kind of like what Riley said, other than Robert Covington, I don't think there was a player out there that got traded or was, quote-unquote, available that Milwaukee could have used that first-round pick to necessarily make themselves better but it does raise an interesting point of you get rid of Brogdon someone who would have helped this team would have helped this team on the court had the skill set has the talent to make Milwaukee a very strong team and you kind of decided you didn't want to pay whether it was pay the repeater tax or luxury tax whatever you didn't want to pay it so you decided to part ways with him and yes you were at least able to get a first round pick but you would think that that first round pick would have been used to make a move to improve the margins just because right now for Milwaukee, you really don't have to make a move. I mean, the team's on pace with 70 games and it's kind of tough to necessarily make a move to improve that. But it's such between winning a championship, like making the finals and winning a championship are thin margins and getting to the finals is another set of thin margins that I think trying to upgrade would have helped and using that first round pick would have been useful. But I guess I'm not as sour on it because I'd rather Milwaukee, if they want to go all in going into 2020, 2021 year, they still have that first round pick and maybe they can use that in a different package and say Eric Bledsoe has another train wreck of a playoffs. Well, you can maybe try and ship him off and get, you know, some other player, like a different starting point guard or you lose Wes and Robin Lopez, and you can use that to get you know another two guard. I'm not saying someone like Buddy Heald, for example. You could maybe try and get some kind of package to get someone like him as well. So I think it's more the, if you were trying to go all in, which I think John Horst is going all in by getting Marvin Williams off the buyout market, that's his indication of going all in and not necessarily feeling like he needs to pay 75 cents to get 50 cents in return. And he could just keep that, use that for the draft night, and maybe he'll upgrade in that aspect, or maybe he'll just draft another player that, you know, in a year or two could come in and help right away. We don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do generally tend to agree with you guys. I, I just think it's important to look at it, try and look at it the other way. It's like, I mean, I, I think this was a good bit of business to, to sign Marvin Williams, you know, not have to sacrifice assets. I, I don't think it was ever generally a smart move to to overpay for a player. Um but I also don't know if like making moves after the season, you know, I mean, if, if, if they don't win the championship this year, you know, 
maybe that means Giannis won't sign the Supermax. Are they going to make the moves again after this year? Like if Bledsoe has another bad playoffs, how many, what's his value going to be like after this year with a, uh, an improving salary? Granted, it's still not super high, but he'll definitely be the kind of guy who would be most realistic to move uh, some of their veteran minimum guys. I mean, we'll have to see who will come after this year, but I, I don't know. I don't, I didn't think there was a great move out there for Milwaukee, but uh, it, it, I mean, on some level, Riley, I, I really struggle with the idea of like, okay, well, at least we still have some assets for next year, potentially, if things don't go right. But I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know, maybe next year, everything could change within a year. I, I just have a really hard time, like trying to to balance that myself, like, like trying to push all in how good this team is doing. Like, why am I still so afraid of like the postseason and how Milwaukee's going to do despite the fact we're on pace for 73 wins? Yeah, I think all of this, the issue with the discussion we're having right now is, excuse me, sorry. Um, The issue with the discussion we're having right now is we're trying to evaluate it based off of the first round pick potential. And really what it all ties back to is the initial decision, like Kyle was saying, about Malcolm Brogdon. And so we've had to adjust the conversation because now the asset that is on hand is that first round pick but there's also as soon as you let malcolm brockton go and you sign everybody else to the deals that you did the difficulty is then you then are restricted per the way the cba and the cap works from actually how you're going to generate a trade and bring in more reinforcements and so i think i, I agree completely with your point that if you know things fall short again this offseason then we're going to have to relitigate everything. But I don't think it's going to be a relitigation of the first round pick. I think it's going to be yet again, another relitigation on the Malcolm Brogdon debate. And, you know, as much as everybody loves every single week being like, Oh, look, Malcolm Brogdon hurt his foot again. (laughs) He'd be doing that here too. I bet, Uh, you know, for everything like that, or like doing direct comparisons for like a 10 game stretch of Eric Bledsoe versus Malcolm Brogdon. I, I think the issue isn't so much the role that he, Malcolm Brogdon has taken on in Indiana and like, oh, would he be able to do that here, et cetera, et cetera. The idea, again, as we talked about months ago and as we've talked since, you let that talent go. And yes, it was expensive talent, but there's a reason why talent is expensive is because it's helpful for a team that's trying to win. And so I think your point about being, you know, not myth, but a little uncertain about them not moving that first round and then just rolling that forward and saying, oh, well, this is a good asset play down the road. Yeah, that's just kind of the logical conclusion of the decision that they made six, seven months ago not to bring back Malcolm and that the fact that they got a first round pick like we've talked about, impressive, nice to have anyhow, but it all ties back into that initial decision. And again, the thing about the regular season is, we can talk about what that guy is doing on another team now, but we're not going to have a real concrete idea whether or not the Bucks made the right or wrong decision until, you know, May and June and seeing, are we missing something there that, for example, having Malcolm Brogdon on the team would have brought. So I, I think that's the difficulty in trying to evaluate this trade deadline is we're still dealing with the after effects of a move made months ago. Yeah, it's a really smart point. And, and another team that uh, tried to make some moves in the Eastern Conference for April, May, they would hope June, I guess. But uh, Kyle, any thoughts on the Miami move, getting Andre Iguodala, Jay Crowder and Solomon Hill or Philadelphia getting um, showing up their bench with Glenn Robinson, the third and Alec Burks? Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. But I think the biggest surprise was and I think the biggest benefit for Milwaukee was that Boston and Toronto 
didn't make any moves. And especially Boston getting a guy like Clint Capella would have been a perfect fit for Boston to beat Milwaukee. Just imagining a pick and roll of Clint Capella and Kemba Walker would terrify the living hell out of me. So those two teams not making moves, I think, was the biggest benefit for Milwaukee and because I think those are the two teams that I realistically think would give Milwaukee the biggest challenge. Miami getting Iguodala, Jay Crowder, and Solomon Hill. I mean, none of those guys really, I feel like, move the needle, needle that much. I mean, Iguodala is what, 36, and has taken half a season off. Yeah, maybe he's a little bit more fresh going into the year, but at the same time, it's probably going to take him time to knock off the rust, and he's still 36. I None of these guys, I feel like, are going to be moves that necessarily frustrate Milwaukee. The only thing that could happen is maybe a good all hits, you know, four or five threes off the bench. Or Jay, Jay Crowder and Solomon Hill, those are good guys that maybe they come in, chip in two or three three-pointers, and that should help. While with giving getting rid of James Johnson and Justice Winslow, I feel like those were defenders that, especially James Johnson, gave Giannis fits. It gave Giannis a little bit of difficulty and just how they played with the physicality. So I think those moves, not necessarily something that I don't think it helps Miami beat Milwaukee, but I think it helps Miami maybe get a two or three seed and avoid having to deal with Milwaukee until potentially Eastern Conference Finals. Philly, eh. I guess getting Glenn Robinson in the third at Alex Burks was a good move, but I think we're also looking at the names and thinking that they're still really, really good players. You know, I know Alex Burks was someone that was talented, was someone that was good. I feel like he's kind of fallen off the face of the earth. And we look at Glenn Robinson in the third. He's been bouncing around multiple teams. And again, just based off of his name, you think, oh, this is a good move for Philly. The fact that Philly didn't have to get rid of players necessarily and just had to get rid of picks is kind of helpful. But at the same time, this is more of Philly trying to fix their bench, but that's not the biggest issue with Philly. The biggest issue with Philly is they don't have a playmaker to help out Joel Embiid and Al Horford run on the floor or give Ben Simmons a little bit more leeway. That and the team is an incredible bunch of frauds on the road and cowards and soft. So <laughs> the usual disclaimers. <laughs> yes. Uh... Very yes, okay. Well, well, we'll we'll cap your point with that. Very helpful. Um, I think. I mean, although I will say, like seeing the like twenty minutes or whatever that Shake Milton had to play uh, in in Josh Richardson ab in uh, absence the other night, I, I do feel like they could probably use a dude like Alec Burks. That was that is brutal for them. And it's also hard because those guys are on Golden State Warriors, and of course, given they're missing everyone, they're going to put up pretty big numbers. So that's helpful. Um, yeah, the, the Miami move didn't really move the needle a whole lot for me. Uh, you, you know, Andre Iguodala, Jay Crowder, it kind of feels like they, even though James Johnson wasn't really playing for them and neither was Justice Winslow, it feels like they just slotted in different larger wings anyway. It feels like Miami is just able to pull those guys off the scrap heap regardless and Spo coaches them up uh, to become really competent defenders. So it, it doesn't, Iggy obviously will be like a really nice fit there and everything, but it doesn't move the needle drastically for me in terms of their ability to potentially face off against Milwaukee in the playoffs. I also didn't necessarily buy the, like, if they get Gallo, then they might be able to compete with Milwaukee a narrative that seemed to come out of the trade deadline. I don't know, Riley, that just, like, didn't really compute to me. 
Yeah, I mean, I think once you get into that, <laughs> once you're in like trade oh. deadline week, it's like everybody's in this weird hype vortex, you know, where it's like, oh my God, dude, if they get Alec Burks, they might be able to get three championships right here. Like <laughs> every single player that gets moved, I mean, for the most part, especially when it's going to like contender, most people try to contort themselves into like, oh, this is why this move makes sense. So I, I get that that's just like what people do. So I discount that a lot as well. But I, I think the idea was going to be it, it's essentially at that point it's like a talent acquisition and you're just putting up to well, spo will find a way to make it work and maybe that's the case because obviously spolstra is a very very good coach so i, I agree that while looking on paper that jay crowder and andre Gudala don't look super duper impressive um, there's still a possibility over the course of a series that Coach Spolstra is able to find a way to make them not a little bit more impressive in the way that matters most over four games. And so uh, I agree that if they had got Gallinari, it would have been interesting, I guess, because I think there were a lot of teams that would have liked Gallinari just because of the way that he plays. But um, at that point, if you're good, you're just kind of getting on the hype train of like, okay, well, they got Iggy, then they got Jay Crowder, they get rid of guys that they're not even playing anyhow. If they get this other guy that could play as well, that's like even more on top. And so uh, at that point, I think it's more so just like the hype train, which again, totally understandable. It's just kind of the mood of the moment, but uh, we'll have to see. I I'm really interested when the Bucks I have to look when they play the Heat next, but it's been, it didn't we, did we play him twice already this season? I can't remember off the top of my head. The Heat, I should say. I know we played him at the very start of the season, which was kind of fluky. I'm looking here. I, I don't think they've only played him once. Yeah, so we must play them once. Yeah, we play him twice more this season. So I think both of those, again, this is like the Philly game earlier this week, which uh, a little bit of a downer because it's right before the trade deadline or on trade deadline day. But I, I'm just going into it interested to see how does this matchup work and is there adjustments that is being made by the other team now that they even have new talent as well that the Bucks are going to have to deal with. So that's, what's interesting to me more than saying they did this X move they're definitively or even higher odds now of beating the Bucks because we don't really have a track record yet of seeing those two teams play each other as currently constructed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a great point. I think Kyle, your point also was, was well taken about Boston and Toronto and Indiana, not really deciding to go all in. We saw last year a lot of the Eastern Conference contenders were, were making moves, whether it was Marc Gasol, the Tobias Harris trade, uh, the Bucks obviously getting uh, Nikola Mirotic. You know, all of those kind of moves were those guys clearly thinking that they had a chance to win the championship. Certainly worked out for Toronto, did not necessarily work out for Milwaukee, as we all know. Uh, but interesting to see them kind of stand pat. But I think we should, we've talked around it, but I think I think we should zero in and, and talk a lot more about this Marvin Williams signing. Oh, I thought uh, that was going to be, I thought that was going to be your lead into the John Henson, Brandon Knight trade, but. Well, we'll let you comment on that real quick, Riley here. I know that's a, that's a big one for you. It's, you know, I had that bad boy circled the moment that it came across the Twitter <laughs> wire, uh, whether or not it makes Detroit a better basketball team. I mean, the answer is obviously surely no, uh, but I, I want to give them credit for doing everything that they can to try and channel into that pre or very early Giannis energy around Milwaukee. Where I was like, we don't really know what this guy is capable of. Maybe he'll become one of the greatest ever. And it worked out for Milwaukee. And I think Detroit's strategy is let's just get all the guys that was like around the team at that time and see if we can like, maybe uh, what's a, uh, I can't remember the name of their rookie right now. Um, Siku Dumboya. Yes. Yeah, Siku Dumboya. Maybe, maybe they're thinking let's get the Giannis 
ecosystem around him and put that let's make that guy Giannis. And so I want to give a credit to the to the Pistons front office staff for playing eight D chess while the rest of us are playing checkers. So that that's all I really wanted to comment there. Thank you. Yes, but of course the the eight the eight the eighty chess players who selected Henry Allen and Pride of Rice Rice Lake or whatever uh, <laughs> completely washed out of the league. Um, kudos to them. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about Marvin Williams, uh, Milwaukee Waves Dragon Bender, m- m- which was pretty expected for from all of us because um, obviously Thanasis has to stay on the roster and Marvin Williams, longtime vet, been on the Hornets for about six years. Uh, Big sort of three and D guy, six nine um, guy who we presume could play power forward. If you look at cleaning the glass, he's mostly been slotted in a power forward and a little bit of center for Charlotte this year. As we all know, Charlotte likes to play pretty small, as we've seen in all their matchups against the Bucks. Kind of marginalized given uh, the Hornets' decision to go a little more youth oriented this season. Uh, but he's a guy that can really shoot it from deep. He's thirty eight percent from three this year um, over his career. He's been really solid too. Uh, he's a guy who can offer seemingly a little more defensive versatility than Ursan is. He's, he's just about the same age uh, as as Ursan's reported age. Um, I was going to say, is he? <laughs> he, he, he might. He might actually know. be. He might be a little more spry even uh, than Ursan. <laughs> but um, I mean, this is a guy who shoots. If you look at uh, in terms of the number of, of shots, his shot profile. I mean, it fits in perfectly with Milwaukee. Fifty four percent of his uh, shot attempts have come from deep this season, 57% last year, 51% last year. So almost every year that he's been in Charlotte, he's basically taking half of his shots from beyond the three-point arc. So, I mean, Kyle, it seems like a very natural fit. Uh, what's what's like your sort of level of expectation for what we might be should expect from Marvin Williams? I think he's going to be a very solid pickup for Milwaukee just because he's still, but like you mentioned, he's still shooting 40% from three. He's still very solid on defense. He's going to be someone that can come off the bench. He's going to be what everyone hopes DJ Wilson was going to be. And I think when he when Milwaukee plays a Miami or a Toronto, you can use him against Pascal Siakam and Bam Adebayo and even Miles Turner in Indy. Like you can use him in no situations or Sabonis, I guess. So I think that's going to be the best part is that you have that athletic four that you can kind of allow Giannis to play at the five, similar to Urzan, just against more athletic forwards. And I think that was what one of Milwaukee's biggest issues last year is you had Urzan and you had Miritich, both of whom are, let's just say, not great on defense. And I think they it got exposed too many times to count. So having someone like Marvin Williams, who still has that athleticism and strength to keep up, is going to help Milwaukee. And like I said, it's also the 40% from three. And the fact that he's not going to any of the LA teams or somewhere else, another contender that could have helped Milwaukee. Another contender that could have helped in their title chase goes to Milwaukee in which even if they don't use him as much, maybe still gives 10 minutes off the bench. That's better than, you know, expecting 20 minutes from Ursan. I think, so if I can jump in on it, um, I think what's interesting about this is I think we probably shouldn't go into this saying like he's athletic in the, in the way that like uh, I'm some, like, I'm not going to claim I'm more athletic than Ursan because yes. he's an NBA player, but, <laughs> but so I'm not going to go that far, but we're talking degrees here where, I mean, this is still a guy who's 33, obviously, 
I mean, if you look at the minute load, I'd have to pull up how many minutes he's played, but he's had, he has a lot of minutes on those legs, which is fine. He's been in the league a long time. He's obviously a really good veteran. And like you were saying, he brings the three point shooting, which we need. Um, and I'm assuming again, this is like every discount or disclaimer on most players. Like I haven't watched a ton of Hornets basketball this season, but you know, I'm assuming he does have probably a little more in the tank athletically and just like either lateral movement or just sticking to a guy a little bit better than Ursan does. And so it'll be an improvement there, but I'm not sure going into it if I'm going to expect this to be like the shutdown guy, like, you know, how we were all thinking 12 months ago that Thanasis was going to shut down Paul George in the finals. I'm not sure if Marvin is going to fill in that role potentially. Um, I somewhat doubt it. So I'm not saying I expect him to be good. I'm not expecting really like great, great things like, wow, this guy is, you know, I can't believe there's a reason why he got on the bio market, obviously a good fit for us, but um, it'll be the ultimate test to see what does Bud's system do for these guys in terms of jacking their numbers up? Because if you just do like a, just this season comparison, um, you know, Ursan's playing quite a few, like I think four minutes less a game on average. And yet he's got like way higher rebound numbers, uh, quite a bit more in terms of points, uh, things like that. And even like per 36 numbers are a pretty big difference. And so I'll be interested to see, does Marvin now see like an uptick in his rebounding numbers because the way that the Bucks try to rebound? Does he see an uptick in his scoring numbers because you know obviously the Bucks are this really dominant offensive force and the way that they get shots for their guys and on the perimeter and the fact that he is such a prolific shooter from there. And also, you know, my final point would be if you're looking just at the statistics to see, you know, what does this guy look like within like a team concept defensively? You have to discount a lot of it because Charlotte has been a horrendous defense for like years now. I think they're the third worst defense in the league this year. And that's been pretty on point for most seasons that uh, the past couple of years. So, or at least his time with the Hornets as well. So I, I think it's interesting, a little bit of a question mark. I think he'll be an athletic improvement over Ursan, but I'm not expecting this guy to come in like really wow us night to night, because I think that's unrealistic with how many miles he has on his legs already. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. I I pulled this from, from Tim McMahon uh, on Twitter, the last buyout guy um, to play at least 100 playoff minutes for a title team was uh, Peja Stojakovic on the 2011 Mavericks, which I don't even remember what he did on that team besides shoot some threes occasionally rolling off um, screens and whatever. But I think, I, I think you make really smart points about Marvin Williams. I'm curious how he would fit into the rotation Will he be able to displace any Ursan minutes who's seemingly played like yeah. a little less lately? And he's Ursan is also like one of Bud's favorite players, seemingly. So I, I'm very curious how he would fit in that way. Uh, also, just a, a reminder that usually buyout guys like generally aren't that helpful. I know Ursan was really Ursan like that. It seems like that Ursan and Bellinelli year where they played on Philly it has like jacked the value guys can be uh but generally i mean they're they're like historically they aren't huge movers in terms of how uh teams are going to play or perform and and changing how a team does overall and also i mean obviously that philly team didn't reach the summer or whatever they just wanted a little depth uh i am very curious to see how marvin williams fits in with the milwaukee bucks seemingly he seems like a great fit shoots the three i uh, can able, able to play within a, a team defense uh conceptually maybe be able to move a, a little bit more laterally than Ursan Ilyasova gives you another option if you don't trust DJ Wilson in the playoffs. But 
I mean, this is also a guy who has not really been a part of teams that have played deep into the playoffs, at least as, <laughs> as far as I can tell. I mean, he was on so those Atlanta teams to start that, you know, historically would always just get knocked off the, the Joe Johnson Hawks or whatever. Um, then he's on Utah and then God knows he's in Charlotte. So he certainly hasn't seen any crunch time minutes. So I, I think that's another factor. Yes, he's a veteran, uh, which is great, but he hasn't really seen the kind of really high intensity playoff minutes. It's certainly not in the same way that Ursan has. Well, and, and I think your point about him being this guy, did, did he time his time with Atlanta crossover at all with Bud's time? This is, these are all research points that I probably should have looked up beforehand. I don't think so. Cause his last year was 2011, 12. And I, I think okay. Bud was later. Yeah. Well, so ignoring that then. So I think it is interesting where we've we've talked about in the past where it's like the issue with Budenholzer is he loves running a 16 man rotation deep into the playoffs. So so like the my my question then is we know that like you said earlier Ursan is like one of his guys understandably so because Ursan is still doing the damn thing this deep into his career. But I think we've talked about in the past where one of the concerns regarding Budenholzer is is he able to make the decisive move to put or like shorten up the rotation or to put a guy in at when like the situation calls for it? Is he going to be willing to pull the levers and move things around? Or is he kind of going to fall back and be like, well, you know, Marvin's struggling a little bit out there. So let, let's just put Urson in to see how it works. Like, is he going to experiment negatively in that way? So yes, it's helpful in that your talent level for the roster took a, a you know, a slight step forward. But there might be a little bit of a drawback in that it gives Budenholzer another button to push. And it seems like he's reticent to push a lot of buttons most of the time, which is fine because, as we talked about, the team's really good. But I, I do question that a little bit where, you know, it, maybe it's not one single game in a playoff series, but maybe the, over the course of a playoff series, is he going to be able to, in his own mind, be able to figure out what the right combination is and who to play when and what the minute allocation is when he's got this new guy who might on paper be better than Ursan, but he might feel more comfortable with Ursan in a certain spot. And so that's, that's something I'm a little concerned about as well, where you don't get rid of any of the depth where you're forcing Budenholzer to play Marvin Williams, you're just giving him more options. And so does, does that kind of force miscalculations or make the calculations a lot more difficult for him to do in tight situations? Yeah, how I mean, how do you think those those minutes might bounce out, Kyle? I, I mean, Miritich came in and, and was able to get a decent amount of minutes, and Bud Bud sort of went with some supersized lineups last year. But how do you think those Bud might try and play those minutes at least initially between Ursan and Marvin? I think he'll still give Marvin Williams, you know, five ten minutes of run just to see how things are going early on, and then maybe as it gets near the end of the season and the eventual first round sweep of whoever they play, he'll maybe get up to that fifteen twenty. But I don't think he's going to get more than 20 minutes per game unless Ursan is injured or one of just plays himself out of the rotation, which I don't see happening necessarily. Um, maybe instead of giving some minutes to Pat Connaughton, it goes to Marvin Williams. And maybe instead of Robin Lopez getting 15 minutes, you give some... I think he'll just start... It's not necessarily going to come from Ursan Silva necessarily, but it might come from a Pat Connaughton, a Marvin Williams, even a Kyle Korver where he might take a couple of their minutes to get up to that 10-15 range. 
Yeah, just jumping in real quick. So the the one corollary that we do have is when Miritich came last season because that was, again, like the same position that Ursan played. Now, I'd have to go back and remember if Ursan was dealing with any sort of injury issues. But when Nicola came, first four games as a buck, he did not play. I think he was still dealing with a little bit of an injury. And then he went uh, against Boston about 14 minutes. Next game, 18 minutes, 22 minutes, 26 minutes, and kind of stayed within the 22-ish range minutes per game. Um, and so I think we can point to that and say we, we have at least somewhat of a history of if they get this upgrade. And obviously that was a little different because that was a trade acquisition rather than buy. Okay. But I, I am curious. Uh, I think there is a chance that Budenholzer might just give them the keys right away and see how that works. Just they can even spin it and say like, this is Ursan getting like a break for a couple of weeks as we try to integrate, the, integrate this guy. So may, maybe that's the other direction to go. So it could go really either way at this point. Yeah, I also think you make, I mean, even George Hill is out now, but I think you make a good point, Kyle. I mean, we're getting a lot of Kyle Corver minutes, like every night. So um, many. Oh, right, many. and this is, I mean, and this is a guy who last year basically couldn't play for the Jazz in the playoffs. Um, they basically benched him. So I, I think we should definitely keep an eye on that and see if Marvin Williams is a guy that they try and stick in and get a little more size out there. Because even if you look at like the playoff minutes uh, between Ursan and Nikola, I mean, Ursan played in every single playoff game. Uh, averaged anywhere from like 11 minutes to 22 minutes um, to 25 minutes, but it was usually within that range. And Nikola Miritich, as we all know, played in just about every playoff game except for the last one. And after he they like ramped him back up for the Detroit games, he was basically anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes in every single game um, except for the last two games against Toronto. So like that's a lot of minutes that he was playing for this Milwaukee team last year. So I, I, I really think that Kyle Korver could be some of those minutes that they would take. I really don't think that Pat Connaughton is going to have a place in the rotation come playoff time, just given the fact that when George Hill was really cruising out there with Dante DiVincenzo as well, uh, there wasn't really a place for Pat Connaughton. I mean, he fits in and just stuff, all that kind of, you know, jazz and everything. But I just think defensively, if teams are going to attack Pat Connaughton. Teams are going to attack Kyle Korver, especially zero in on him game after game after game. And he's, he's a guy who maybe you should look for more, even more so than Ursan because teams might zero in on Ursan, but you know, you, you're going to need to even, you're going to need to try and find and shore up these defensive weak links that our teams are going to attack specifically in the playoffs. Um, I don't know. Any, any other closing thoughts on, on trade deadline or, or buyout moves, Kyle? I, I think, Lately, in the, I feel like in the past few years, the trade deadline hasn't brought as many big-name moves just because you either do it in the summer or teams are trying to value their first-round picks and younger players more than they ever did in the past. So I feel like trade deadline is starting to get a little bit too overrated in terms of how we approach it and think it's going to be this massive, chaotic time period where it's like, eh, it's relatively fine. I think the... July 1st, like beginning of free agency has now surpassed trade deadline in terms of I can't not be by my phone when this happens type of thing. My uh, my final question before we wrap up on this, uh, do we, I know you said earlier, Adam, that uh, we pretty much expected Dragon to be the guy. Is is that still the case? Like, do, do you guys have a preference? Was there somebody else that you would have rather get the cut or do you think that was the right move? Um, I, I think just given like he was, I believe he was not guaranteed for next year. And like Thanasis is guaranteed. I think just given the financial state of the team, it, it makes the most sense to, 
to cut him. And I mean, he was a he was a great flyer or whatever, but he was never going to make a meaningful contribution to this team. So I, I'm kind of fine with it. Yeah, yeah, that was my thing too. Everyone was like, oh my God, I can't believe we just got rid of this guy. We got that cheap de- deal next year and he was going to be our Robin Lopez replacement, which I mean, if that's the case, we're we're dead in the water in the, in the first place anyhow. But I agree that uh, the fact that he wasn't going to contribute this year and there's still a reality where Sterling could potentially and DJ, you don't want to eat that dead money. I think I agree that Dragon was the odd man out. Yeah, you didn't want to take the dead money that came with DJ Wilson. Sterling Brown, you know, if it gets to the point where he's forced into rotation minutes, then yes, the Bucks are in trouble regardless. And Drogbender is not going to help it. And you can find a Robin Lopez replacement for a low cost. That's how they found Drogbender in the first place. I mean, you just got to look at, I don't know, what's Galabissier doing? You know, something like that, you can easily just give the same type of contract and it'd be fine. Plus, maybe it looks good for the Bucks for other guys, like you're saying, who might be looking for a flyer, just like a buy low guy where, hey, you know, you can go to Milwaukee and they'll they'll develop you or they'll really showcase you with the G League team. And I mean, I don't know if he's officially been waived yet or what the situation is, but maybe it looks good as well that there are guys who can and whatever show out or look positive under Bud's system and maybe get another chance at another look at another team. So. Yeah, well, we, we bid a, a fond adieu to you, Dragon. Thank you for taking DJ's minutes and stirring up controversy <laughs> for a few games here. Uh, we ourselves are going to take a quick break, and on the other side of it, we'll talk about some of the games from this past week, my, my, mainly focusing in on that 76ers game. So stay tuned. All right, we are back, guys. And uh, so the, the couple, we had a couple games this past week, Suns, Pelicans, 76ers, the Magic. The Suns game obviously was the, the day we used Super Bowl Sunday. We recorded that that morning, so we didn't touch on it. Um, I'm just going to say briefly, Bucks win 129-108. Uh, Giannis scores 30, has 19 rebounds, 9 assists, 25 points for Chris, 8 rebounds, uh, 6 assists for him. Lopez, 17 points, uh, 7 of 16 from the field. I got a few few chances to work inside early when the Suns were uh, not really putting a, a big upon him, which was kind of nice to see uh, the Bucks go to that mismatch. But I, I mean, overall, I think certainly went, I wouldn't say according to script because the Bucks haven't shown really a propensity to look spectacular in early afternoon games this year. But uh, I mean, generally what we would have expected and, and a nice bit of revenge, uh, Riley, over the, for the, after Phoenix beat us twice last year. Yeah, I was I was sweating it out a little bit because they're buck killers, those Phoenix Suns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, what was the one notable thing from that game? Like I said, it was kind of per per usual for the Bucks, but I think what was interesting and is kind of again instructive for other teams potentially was Devin Booker out there. Like he goes nine of fifteen, he gets to the free throw line thirteen times, etc., um, or for thirteen free throws it was interesting watching him in the flow of the Phoenix offense because he, he has such like a, like a probing way that he handles the ball and kind of attacks defenses where he, he's not, he doesn't overcommit to one certain move early in the shot clock. He's just kind of like moving around trying to manipulate defenses. And I think he did a pretty good job of manipulating the Bucks's like drop zone scheme to find other guys around him to like, try and get better shots at the rim. Now, unfortunately for him, those guys were like uh, Kelly Oubre, who went 5 of 20, and uh, Aiton, who went 10 of 27. So not exactly the best finishers or the best uh, you know, uh, results to those sorts of passes, but we've seen time and time again where a guard who has the patience and kind of the IQ to keep an eye out and really manipulate the Bucks defense, uh, it can be 
kind of touch and go for Milwaukee. And in this case, again, I think it's a talent thing and, you know, they end up playing to their strengths and get the win anyhow. But I thought that was kind of the one interesting thing from that game, but you know. Yeah. 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 Certainly uh, always good to see different players and see how they're able to bend uh, Milwaukee's defense, test them in different ways. Next one, of course, this week, we had two primetime games this week. The first of which was a 120 to 108 victory over the New Orleans Zion Pelicans. Uh, Giannis scores 31 points, 16 rebounds. Again, nine assists, uh, 20 points for Chris Middleton, eight rebounds, eight assists, nine of 18 from the field. Every starter hits double digits in that one. Bucks lead in the points in the paint category, 60 to 40, 33 to 14 on fast break points. Uh, Kyle, the, the, I mean, the most interesting thing for this was watching uh, Zion go for 20 points, uh, just five of 19 from the field and really watching Zion go up against uh, Giannis in this one uh, weird play aside where Zion like steals the ball from Giannis and then everyone's like loses their mind uh, about it. Uh, what, any, any key takeaways from this one, Kyle? It was interesting just because Early in the game, New Orleans was getting pretty hot from three. I think Lonzo Ball had started three of three or three of four from three-point line. Brandon Ingram has continued his fantastic play this year. They just had shots falling for them, which was good for them because, you know, if you get the shots and you hit them, great. You can't really – and it wasn't like Milwaukee's defense was poor like it was in the San Antonio Spurs loss or the Philly loss. It was just a matter of – they were just hitting tough shots and some decent ball movement, and you can't really do much about it. But once those shots stopped falling for New Orleans, that's when Milwaukee was able to break away in the game, and it's evident with the 33 fast-break points. Milwaukee was definitely playing with a little bit more speed at the beginning of the second half. So the score was relatively closer just because New Orleans had the hot start, and I think it was the end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter. They were playing pretty well, and Milwaukee was... I want to say being lackadaisical, but you could definitely tell they were taking their foot off the gas at various points in the third quarter, which Giannis mentioned in the post-game interview as well. Um, in terms of watching Zion, I enjoyed watching him play just because you know we've waited almost all season for him to have this kind of impact. We weren't sure what he was going to be. You know, a guy that size, able to move that fast and jump that high and kind of defy physics, it seems like. You know, it's very fun to watch, and especially him skying in for rebounds and doing whatever it takes to dunk on people. And I think that's kind of the cool part. Obviously, he's going to need to refine his game a little bit more, um, try a little bit less, not necessarily less, but he doesn't have to dunk it on everyone all the time, I guess is the one I would go for. But it was interesting watching Giannis guard him because I think Giannis is one of the few players in the league that has the size and strength to stay with him. And you can tell Giannis had a couple blocks at him, able to frustrate him, hence the 5 of 19 from the floor. Um, that was, you know, between Giannis and Brooke Lopez. And it was also evident in the Philly game as well that their paint defense was the key part that stood out and why it was able to frustrate him so much. So I think Giannis handled that task pretty well. I think Wes Matthews also deserves a shout out. He had a pretty good defensive game as well. And it was just one of those where Milwaukee was able to get its baskets relatively easy and it was just a matter of new orleans hitting a lot of shots at the beginning that made this game a little bit more tense around halftime and then when it got to the third and fourth quarter it was just more ho-hum normal stuff from milwaukee yeah impressive stuff from brandon ingram basically throughout the game i think he had 32 points so that was a really quality game from him but yeah i'll tend to agree on all points zion is, is very interesting 
uh, to watch him like a bowling ball out there. It'll be, it'll be really curious to see him be able to figure out a way to more fine tune his motor. So he knows when to rev up and rev down as opposed to just going like 3 million miles an hour on every single play. Um, also, I've never seen a guy who like every time he is just walking, he looks like he's limping. I wonder if he has like a leg that's shorter than the other. I don't know. Uh, but he always has like a weird gait to him as he's just walking around on the court. But um, yeah, and he looked yeah. gassed. Yeah, by the third, like third or fourth quarter, he looked exhausted, and he wanted to keep playing, but he definitely conditioning wise is not like regular season game ready. It's like that. Yeah. It's like that one meme of those two really jack dudes like doing the handshake or whatever, and it's like player X and player Y agreeing on one thing. It's like Joel Embiid and Zion Williamson agreeing to be gassed ten minutes into the game. Like that's what that equivalent is essentially. <laughs> but I'll give Zion um, a pass because being injured and stuff, Joel Embiid just comes in camp out of shape. Speaking of Embiid and the Sixers. Well, Embiid and Nikola Jokic have that common thing, right? Actually, that's the perfect meme for it. Embiid and Jokic showing up to training camp out of shape. <laughs> Playing just out of shape over the season. Very, very true. And thank you for the the delightful segue. Riley, let's move into the uh, the marquee game from this past week, the 112-101 victory over the 76ers. Milwaukee gets revenge for that Christmas Day game. Uh, interesting how this one played out. I'll just go over some of the box score stuff real quickly. Giannis, 36 points, 20 rebounds, 6 assists, 13 of 25 from the field. Uh, really took it to Embiid and all the Sixers defenders, whoever decided to guard him the entire evening, almost exclusively. He did his scoring inside the paint. Uh, Chris Middleton, 20 points. Eric Bledsoe, 14 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists. Uh, I wanted to highlight Robin Lopez here. Uh, nine points in 19 minutes. I thought he had, did an excellent, excellent job filling in for his brother, Brooke, who was in foul trouble. Uh, Milwaukee frustrates Embiid almost the entire evening, just 19 points for him, 11 rebounds, but that's on six of 26 shooting. So uh, really impressive stuff from there defensively for Milwaukee. Horford, 15 points, five of 17 overall, five of 12 from deep, basically the same strategy that they used while he was in Boston. Uh, I, I think the, the interesting thing here, Riley, is, you know, in terms of Philly, from three-point land, they shoot pretty similar to what they did on Christmas, 19 of 45, 42.2%. You know, Milwaukee shoots a little bit better, 12, 37, 32.4%, but uh, the Bucks still win by 11, so relatively handily, even if the game uh, was close for uh, the, the majority of it. Yeah, I'll have to, I'm pulling out the box score from the Christmas Day game because I think, yeah, so the, really I think the key difference is we're seeing in this past game this past week, Joel Embiid plays pretty awfully on the offensive end. He's still a force on defense. And, you know, for most of the game, it was pretty much a grind for Milwaukee. Like, even deep into the third and fourth quarter, it was like it was still relatively close, like still stuck in the 80s and 90s, whereas we're used to the Bucks, you know, approaching 100-plus points a game with a pretty rapid speed. And so if, if I go back then to the Christmas Day game, the difference there looks to be like Joel Embiid ends up going for 31 points, three, six from three uh, Tobias Harris. He doesn't have to take nearly as many shots and he's more efficient. And so it, even though the Sixers did shoot pretty much as well from three uh, and probably outside of their character to shoot that well from three. But I, I think what's interesting is it really revolves around whether or not Embiid has it going on a night to night basis, because when he doesn't, the Bucks kind of do what other teams could potentially do to guys like Brooke Lopez, the way that he's shooting right now, or like Eric or any, or even Giannis, where you just leave them alone on the three point line. And that kind of clogs things up even further. Whereas if you're a team who sort of honors Joel Embiid out there, 
you know, that obviously opens things up just enough for them to be able to use the rest of their personnel to get better baskets. Whereas, I mean, poor Tobias Harris, obviously not that poor uh, financially because that dude's <laughs> making bank. Shout out to that guy. But every single time he tried to make anything happen offensively, it seemed like he ran into seven to eight bucks. Like that's how many defenders were all over him. And so there was no such thing as a clean look. And so when that's the case, if you can just almost totally discount Joel Embiid because you have a guy – uh, like the Lopez brothers botting him up and making it difficult for him. That makes life so much easier for everybody else. It forces the the Sixers who already have a stop-and-go like molasses-like offense, slows them down even more and gives you enough space to be able to, over time, even if it is a grind for yourselves, you're still the better offensive team and you can execute a little bit better. And shout-out to Bud as well. It, like you were saying, with the matchups with Lopez out there, I do want to give credit to the fact that Budenholzer seemed to have change the rotations on the fly to say, okay, we, we got to get Giannis's rest minutes while Embiid is out there. Robin, you go out and you you body up Embiid and you do the best to help us survive these like next three or four minutes. And for a team that's already like the Sixers, that's already pretty shallow in terms of rotation depth or useful rotation depth. I think you lose those like three minutes of productive play from Embiid where it's just a little subpar and all of a sudden, you know, the Bucks obviously go out and get the win at the end. So I, I thought it was pretty impressive from top to bottom even though I, I don't think it convinced me that a series against the Sixers would be a breeze. I think it'd still be a, you know, knockdown drag out fight, which would be pretty brutal for everybody involved. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that if you flip this around and you're looking at it from Philly's perspective, which uh, apologies in advance, um, you know, they might say, well, Embiid went six of 26 by 11, you know, Al Horford five of 17. We only lost by 11. I mean, we'll, we'll take that. We still played really well against Milwaukee. I think where Milwaukee really had success, I mean, holding them to 33% shooting inside the arc, 18 to 54 overall is, is really impressive, but it is what Milwaukee wants to do. That's their game is stopping people from scoring inside. Uh, and and I did want to highlight again, Kyle, just the fact that the fact that Bud would take out Giannis and just say, all right, Robin, Brooke is out. It's your job to basically put a body on Embiid keep him frustrated, keep him from being able to score. There's a, there's a part here at the end of the first start of the second where Giannis isn't out there. It's basically Robin just like doing his best to uh, stop and beat. And I just thought he had, his minutes were huge. And then when he hit two threes, I mean, that was just uh, icing on the cake. Yeah. And you know, you could say, yes, we, the, we Embiid played this poorly and Al Horford played this poorly and lost by 11, but it really doesn't fully tell the story of how, bad Philly looked interior defensively and Milwaukee shot piss poor from three. They were 12 to 37 and they still were able to comfortably. It was a comfortable win. It wasn't, you know, since after halftime it was a comfortable win for Milwaukee. So I guess I'm not in that mindset of, you know, Embiid and Horford play that poorly. The Bucks did exactly what they wanted to do. And that was force them to force Embiid and Horford in particular to take those three-point shots. You know, Embiid and Horford combined to go eight of 22, which if that's going to happen, that's totally fine. And it still doesn't explain how Philly doesn't have a solution to stopping Giannis in the paint. It still doesn't ex- stop Philly from letting Chris Middleton catch fire in the second half. You know, it's still a lot of these things where, Milwaukee played the game that it wanted to, and that is why they were able to get the comfortable win that they did. And Philly's kind of looking at their bench really didn't contribute much other than uh, Korkmaz, who I think he was he had twelve of the team's twenty something points. So 
for me, it was just more of the Milwaukee's defense was fantastic, especially on Joel Embiid. They frustrated Philly. They stymied Philly. Again, only getting 33% from inside the arc. I think that's what Milwaukee would want is for Philly's poor shooters to take as many of those shots as possible. You know, you're going to have days like the Christmas day where maybe they'll hit those and there's nothing more you can do about it. But at the same time, you can have something like Philly like tonight where you still, they still hit a good chunk of three, still shooting 42%, but you don't allow them to get points in the paint. You don't allow them to get to the free throw line too much. You don't allow them to defensively impose their will on Giannis. You know, Giannis is able to kind of just breeze through, get him beat on a couple post moves. Uh, Brooke Lopez was able to defensively at least just kind of stand tall even when he wasn't foul trouble. Yeah, shout out to Robin Lopez. I think that was his best game in a Milwaukee Bucks uniform. He was even able to hit a couple threes just to add to it. And I think Bud saw that and went a little bit smaller because Ursan only played seven minutes. Brooke Lopez, because of trial, foul trouble, played 25. So you went with a lot of center Giannis lineups. And I think that was really the difference is Milwaukee was able to just go and run. And when you have Embiid and Horford, they can't keep up with that speed. And the fact that Philly mentally is just pathetic on the road. And, <laughs> uh, the the other thing that I would note, besides being pathetic on the road from Philly, uh, I, I want to give a shout out to Chris as well, where, you know, how much did he share? I think he was 8 to 17. Yeah. Um, even though it wasn't, I mean, relatively efficient, almost 50% from the floor. What was really impressive was Ben Simmons was the guy who was guarding him for the most part. And, you know, as much as we can all clown on Ben Simmons for not shooting threes or anything further from like three feet from the basket, you know, he still is a really good defensive player given his athleticism and size and length. And so there was a chance that Chris, you know, the multiple times there would be like a pick, Chris would try to get around it and then Ben Simmons be like all over his back or right around him. And there would be times in the past where I think we could see Chris in that situation pass out or try and defer to somebody else because he doesn't want to try and take over. Or he's just not feeling that aggressive. And in this game, multiple, multiple times where even with Ben Simmons sort of contesting him, it was a good, a good enough shot, even in the mid range for Chris to feel comfortable and try to stay aggressive, which is what we've asked for. And so if you're going to be looking for games and say, this is, this is like the difference for Chris Middleton this year versus even a year ago, stuff like this, where, he has a defender on him and he still takes it on his own shoulders to try and make offense happen. Um, so it doesn't become a, a one way, just like everything runs to Giannis, let the wall build sort of situation. I think that was really effective as well and helpful for Milwaukee. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic point. I mean, you could see Chris, I mean, you could see Chris Middleton basically getting guarded by Ben Simmons, like almost out to the logo at half court. It was, he was really trying to crowd him. And we all know that Chris isn't exactly like the most, athletic guy but he certainly has such a he has such a patient uh, repertoire of moves that he can break out to just slowly methodically work to his spot and find where it is that he wants to go and and you make a very very smart point that in the past maybe he would have gotten frustrated and not continued to go for that but all credit to him uh, for doing so one other thing I want to touch on is this was the first chance basically that we've gotten to see Eric Bledsoe uh, face off against Philly in the last two games. He was hurt Christmas day. And then the last year in Philadelphia, obviously he whipped a ball at some dude's head and got kicked out of the and game right away. An act of violence. Oh, that's right. Yes. A very violent act. Um, being in the crowd that night, it, it seemed very violent. The crowd was upset. Um, but uh, it goes for 14 points, six assists, eight rebounds, six of 14 from the field. Felt very much like an Eric Bledsoe game. A couple of boneheaded plays in terms of like, 
you know, he always seems to seemingly every game he likes to jump in the air and just like toss the ball back to a space where maybe someone is, but no one always is on the Milwaukee team. <laughs> like I almost feel like he needs to remember where the blue squares are uh, a little more often in terms of trying to find Milwaukee players when he jumps in the air. Um, but still, I mean, all credit to him. I mean, he's the kind of guy who is going to need to find his place against a Sixers team that plays really, really big. He's he's more of a jitterbug guard, a guy who can try and get inside, and it's tough to finish against the length that Philadelphia has. But um, major kudos to him for for still putting in 14 points and, and six assists, eight rebounds. That's a line not to sneeze at. So all credit to him. Um, all right, uh, let's let's move on briefly to the 112-95 win over the Magic, which uh you know riley you were up early crunching game tape for this one after your exploits last night so i'll I'll let you take the first lead on on major takeaways from this one look i'm not gonna say i have to take the bucks film room mantle from brian i'm not gonna go that (laughs) far because i did get up and watch the game after you know 2 a.m ddr got up at 7 a.m to get this film in (laughs) um so the dedication is there i'm not nearly as much of an expert though i thought (laughs) watching the game skipping through what i do when i watch these is i just skip the free throws because who cares like whatever (laughs) whatever at the end or like dead ball situations what jumped out to me was especially in the first half i was really impressed with what Giannis was doing from a passing standpoint now there were stretches where his teammates weren't making the shots actually go in, but there were so many times where Giannis drives and in, even before he makes contact where we've seen in the past, he like makes contact, runs into the wall, stumbles a little bit, and then tries to pass out of it. He was a lot more decisive where he takes one step, two step, and then finds a guy with like some sort of zip pass. And more often than not, that would end up in an assist for him. So I thought that was impressive from him, especially in a game where he, this is the first time all season that he didn't take a single three. And so if he doesn't have that going for him, um, even if the other team, if the team is going to then afford you so much space, if you choose not to do the three, then you have to be ready and able to be a really crisp passer to try and attack, get everybody to suck in on you and then go for it, which we've talked about before. But I thought this was a really good execution on his part there. And I think what was most notable was, uh, and we talked, Kyle, you said this before we started recording, was there was a stretch in the third quarter where the Bucks uh, score. <laughs> they were like scoreless for five straight minutes, like they had 12 or 13 possessions without a single basket. And eventually the Magic were able to reel it into like a nine-point game. And yet, even after all that, you go five minutes where the Magic are really hitting and you're not. You still have like a 14 to 10-point lead after all that. So it... it felt pretty much over after the second quarter the magic made it somewhat interesting in the third but i think i don't know if it was anything they were doing specifically there was like a lot of like you're saying with eric bledsoe some nights he's really good at finishing around length in contact at the rim against the magic a little bit less so um it seemed in some situations where he ends up on the ground a lot which is pretty par for the course um, but there were times where either from three or trying to get inside, uh, seemed a little shaky at times. It, the, actually, I'm checking over it right now and it looks like seven of 16 and oh, five from three. So actually seven to 11 from inside. So maybe, maybe I'm not a Bucks film room expert because I missed <laughs> So take back everything I said about Eric Bledsoe. Uh, it's just, again, it feels like another situation where you out talent them. They made it somewhat interesting in the third, but otherwise the most notable thing was Giannis was doing some good passing. So. I think the other thing, Kyle, uh, is Brooke Lopez kind of finally looking like Splash Mountain again, 5 of 5 from deep, 23 points. That's his season high, I believe, 9 of 13 from the floor overall. 
and Wes early yeah. too. I should jump in. Sorry, Wes mm, also did four, four from three. So those two guys I should give a shout out to, that they did pretty well from outside. Yeah, Milwaukee shot thirty like thirty eight, thirty nine percent from three, um, which was probably the best they've done in a long time. It feels like, but Orlando shooting twenty five percent also helped and. Maybe Brooke Lopez just had to make a trip to Splash Mountain, and we'll see if Robin Lopez did any more petty theft while they were down there. But it was <laughs> one of those games where in the second quarter, Milwaukee went on a run kind of like the mid to late of the second quarter, which kind of blew the game open. But then at the six-minute mark, Chris Middleton hits a three or no. It was like the six-minute or like five-and-a-half minutes. Brooke Lopez hits a three, and that was at 524 in the third quarter. And Milwaukee did not make a single basket until, oh my goodness, when was the last time? It took until, I think, near the end, because I know, that, wait. Yeah, it was in, until a couple of seconds into the fourth quarter where they got an alley-oop. And that was the first field goal that Milwaukee had made in over, over six minutes of play. Eric Plus had a couple free throws near the end. So after all that happened, Orlando still didn't really get the lead down significantly despite all that and i think that was just more of what milk is doing eric bledsoe in particular he just looked the most athletic he looked like the fastest guy he looked like the most like the strongest guy on the court just his athletic ability is really what stood out with the honest passing and brook shooting but west matthews again hitting threes is always good chris melton again just still being consistent as he can be getting 13 rebounds that's got to be a season high for him as well and I think Milwaukee's bench really did not do anything to help them. And I think that was really, I think that's what shocked me the most. You know, Kyle Corver has a struggle from the three point land. Pat Connett and get, tries his best to do stuff, but that doesn't always help. It was mainly Milwaukee's starters were significantly better than the entire Orlando Magic team. And it seemed like when one or two of the starters went out, that's when Orlando would make its run. Yeah, I mean, Bucks lead from wire to wire in this one. And I think the closest, besides it being tied 0 0, it was also 23 22 at some point. But the out talenting them is, as I'm just like looking up and down, I like if I'm a Magic fan and the Bucks are up by like 26, and it's like, all right, well, let's see if Bamba, uh, Michael Carter Williams, and Gary Clark can cut into this lead at all. Like that is just so depressing. I feel bad for them. <laughs> you're pretty much favorite. you're pretty much hoping Terrence Ross literally he like ascends yeah. to godhood right there on the court. That's essentially <laughs> your plan at that point. Which uh, <laughs> luckily for Milwaukee, uh, he still gets twenty points, but he did not go even further than that. So yeah. All right, let's move on, guys. Let's talk just a little bit of All Star uh, Weekend primer. So real quickly, we're gonna I'm gonna give you the the two All Star teams, Team Le- Team LeBron, Team Giannis, and I want you to grade it on a scale uh, from F to A plus. So Team LeBron is LeBron, AD, Kawhi, Luca, James Harden for the starters, and then Dame Lillard, Ben Simmons, Jokic, Tatum, Paul, Westbrook, Sabonis for the reserves. Team Giannis. Giannis, Embiid, Siakam, Kemba Walker, Trey Young for the starters. Chris Middleton, Bam Adebayo, Rudy Gobert, Kyle Lowry, Brandon Ingram, Donovan Mitchell for the reserves. Kyle, how would you grade um, Giannis's all-star draft uh, F to A? I would give it a B. I, I his, starter, his picks for the starters were really good. You know, Joel Embiid, Pascal Siakam, Kemba Walker, and Trey Young. All good picks. I thought he was going to take Luka, but or Kawhi, one of those two, because we knew he wasn't. We knew 
uh, LeBron's going to take Anthony Davis. So what Giannis said after that was going to be interesting. So I think his starters are good. His reserves weren't too bad. He did the obligatory. I got to pick my teammate first overall. And then getting guys like Bam Adebayo and Brandon Ingram along with Donovan Mitchell, you know, they can get hot and they can hit, they can go on a run on their own. Rudy Gobert, I, I mean, it's whatever. It's the all-star game. So Rudy's best skill in defense is going to be applicable. And then Kyle Lowry, the guy that can hit two or three threes in a row. So I'd give it a B. I liked his starters picks. His reserves could have left more to be desired. Uh, if I was to right. give it a grade, my, my grade is, I really don't give a damn because it's the All-Star <laughs> game. Uh, not to, not I mean, to I throw. don't care, but if I yeah. had to give a letter, I guess I'll just give it a B not, not to, I don't want to be super critical. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to kick dirt all, all over your exercise, Adam. But uh, <laughs> like to me, um, I re- really couldn't care less. And anybody who's like, oh, my God, Giannis would make an awful GM. I mean, come on, bro. Are we really doing that for content right now? Is that that our lead up? And so the only the only thing I have to note was shout out to Giannis for mocking James Harden for not passing, but then also picking Trey Young, which I can guarantee you is not going to pass the ball during the All-Star game. So, uh, you know, that that's really the only takeaway I have. Otherwise, uh, I'm sure it'll be an all-star game that I will not tune into. So it'll be good times. Also, we have to give a shout out to Giannis for throwing shade at Ben Simmons and the Russell Westbrook trade because he's, it was, uh, I think someone asked him and he said, well, I'm not going to make a trade because the last time he did that, it kind of screwed me over in regards to him trading Ben Simmons for Russell Westbrook. And then Russell Westbrook missed 20 shots in a row, costing Giannis his team to win and him getting the all-star MVP. Fair enough. All right, I give Giannis uh, a C. Next one. Uh, <laughs> that's that's right. threading the needle between B and I don't give a damn. So that feels appropriate. Okay, so we also have Chris Middleton in the skills competition, Pat Conton in the dunk contest. Very good representation for the Bucks this year. Um, Riley, any thoughts on? <laughs> I know you feel very strongly about um, the All Star Weekend. So, um, any thoughts on on either of those guys in their respective competitions? So, no. I mean, I can if if you are of the gambling persuasion, uh, which you know that's that's for certain people. I would hammer whatever the odds that Pat Connaughton places fourth. I would hammer those. Like, just give put all your money, put the mortgage on that bad boy, because there is no way on God's green earth he's doing better than fourth place. Uh, in regards to Chris, it it feels like every year the skills. I mean, it's been again yet another event. It's been years since I last watched, but it, I'm assuming they get zanier and zanier by the <laughs> by the year. So it's like you have to like uh, spin a plate on one hand while also dribbling and like finding Bam out of bio in a pick and roll situation or whatever is like part of the the event. So. Uh, I'm sure Chris will do fine, I guess. I don't know. I think, like, didn't Nikola Jokic win it one year? So it, it seems like it's pretty uh, hit or miss as to who does well or what, like, is an excelling skill. But this will be his chance to prove all of the hashtag haters wrong and really thread the needle with a with a cool pass in front of the entire nation to a uh, a hoop somewhere on the court. So it'll be cool, I'm guessing. Uh, Kyle, any thoughts on uh, on Pat or Chris? Yeah, I think Pat's going to finish second or third. But wow. I just I don't know if Dwight Howard can still jump. The dude's old as hell. Like, is he still that great? I don't know. I can also see Aaron Gordon trying to do too much and get the title that he deserved back in the day. So I can just feel like those who are going to try too hard and Pat Connaughton is just going to 
jump over to dudes and because he's white everybody's like oh wow this guy's jumping oh, that's the gym. that's a really yeah. good point that's a super good point actually that's <laughs> i love yeah, that i'm angle. looking at it through that eyes in terms of the skills challenge i don't know like i guess i'll i don't because what you have to like dribble pass it you have to do like a bounce pass a chest pass hit a three do some dribbling and i mean for some players, it's like slower than their normal game speed, but for Chris Milton, it's exactly the pace that he goes anyway. So maybe he'll do well there. I don't know. Sure, I guess just don't be an embarrassment like he was in the three point shootout. I guess is a win for him. Yeah, the, I mean that's a great point. Now, um, as someone who has long been a uh, viewer of the McDonald's Celebrity All Star Game as well, oh um, yeah, I would like to, sh- <laughs> I would like to shout out. Um, Mr. Lazary for making uh, another appearance uh, in in that one. I actually feel really bad that I haven't looked up the rosters yet. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously tune into that. Great representation for the Bucks all weekend. Um, thanks, guys, for for playing along on the All-Star segment. The, the, the one thing I want to say about the celebrity game, if there was ever going to be something that would get Michael Jordan to risk it all and have us all see what his current athletic state is, it would be the chance to suit up opposite of Lazary and really make those comments a couple weeks ago about, yeah, wow, that's great. Thanks for that. Make it pay with a couple of... <laughs> Just spike, <laughs> just spike those shots from Lazary. So if there's anything that's going to get us to see MJ suit up one last time, I want to give a shout out to Mark Lazary for trying to do it. I think the dude's playing again, 8D chess as the Bucks are want to do uh, under the current regime. Yeah, here are, here's the lineup for. Yeah, yeah let's run these down, yeah. <laughs> Chance the Rapper, Quavo, Taylor Bennett, LaCroy Hawkins, Anthony Spice Adams, Mark Lazary, Ronnie 2K, Caitlin Owashi, I think that's how you mentioned it. Lil Ray Howery, Ajaya Wilson, Darius Miles, Coach Stephen A. Smith, Assistant Coach Guy Fieri. That team is <laughs> going to wipe the floor against the opposition. And I think the, I mean, I recognize most of the names on this team. I don't, like, Taylor Bennett's the only one. And look, look, uh, LaRoyce Hawkins, those are the only two where I look and I was like, I actually don't think I know who, those, who they are. Well, Taylor Bennett is Chance's brother. Oh. Oh. But that's, yeah. But that's think, the only, I, I don't know most of them. Like, I know Quavo's actually pretty good. So I'm not surprised there. Ajaya Wilson, also really good in the WNBA. Darius Miles might have something in the tank. I don't know. But, like, Kayla Nawashi, she's really athletic. You know, the gymnast who had that viral video. So who knows? I think, I think this team should win as long as Chance the Rapper doesn't try too hard like he always does, both in rapping and basketball. Here's the final note on the celeb game. Doesn't it seem strange that they don't get better celebrities for this? Like, the NBA has all this pull and has all this cultural cachet. Not to, like, disrespect these celebrities or whatever. There are some, like, well-known people, but... I'm routinely shocked they don't get even bigger names given like it's like a charity who gives a damn game. So maybe there's like really bad scheduling or celebrities don't want to get exposed or something. I feel like they used to get big, big celebrities back in the day. Yeah, I wasn't watching, so I have no idea, but I'm going to take your word for it. I don't know. I just felt like back, like back then they had like Justin Timberlake and Ice Cube and you know, like Justin Bieber was there, Kevin Hart when he was at like his peak. I, I feel like they had like guys that were like guys and girls that were actually really popular at the time. I would say now, you know, out of the celebrities that are there, Quavo's still relatively popular. 
Ronnie 2K, if you follow NBA 2K, then yeah, he's still pretty popular. But um, unless you unless you really follow Latin music, you probably don't know who Bad Bunny is, and unless you watch the Super Bowl halftime and just learned who he was. But yeah, I feel like back then they had like celebrities at the peak of their popularity. Now it's kind of like yeah, Chance the Rapper's there, I guess. Are we still? I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. Well, I would say this podcast has probably peaked in terms of... Uh, yeah, I would agree. Good for the 50th with this episode. Less, with the 50th episode. So let's move on and, and let's run through our miscellaneous stuff, guys. Uh, Kyle, you want to do rapid fire? All right. Yeah, I have a few questions. Um, so the first one, do you plan on watching the XFL? No. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I was, I'm contemplating. Maybe I'll just have it on as like background noise, but favorite book or book series growing up? Hmm. That's a good one. Do you have one I, off the um, top of your head, Adam? Yeah, I have one that I'd like to um, keep up for. It's uh, this book series, Warriors. It's about cats that would um, live out in the wilderness and like form clans and everything um, by Aaron Hunter. I would I would highly recommend it uh, to anyone interested in, in that very niche fantasy. Uh, I don't have like a book series that jumps to mind because I read... I'm not a weird kid, I swear, but I read like a lot of book about World War II and Nazi Germany. So, so just because, uh, you know, history is interesting to me. But if I was to choose like a series of books, fiction wise, what's that um, young adult literature? It's like not cats, but it's like all the different mammals that but it's like in a medieval world where they all like fight oh, each Red other. Wall. Yes, Redwall. Those are good books. I would shout out to Redwall. Those were always pretty compelling when I read those if I was to choose like a fiction series. That's fair. Mine was a series of unfortunate events. Love that. Those books are freaky. Those movies are freaky too. The movies were weird. The the show was bad, but the books, yeah, it was. The books were also freaky, but I don't know. I enjoyed it. Um, Biggest pet peeve. Oh. When people ask me to grade the All Star. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Just just joking. Um. I don't know. I don't really get perturbed all that easily by a lot of people. Oh, I should shout out everybody who drives in Minnesota is just horrendous. So my pet peeve is Minnesota drivers because they just they must not have the education or the execution ability to follow road rules because it is just it's rampant here in Minneapolis. So that would be that, that's my daily pet peeve is I almost die every day on the roads. Um, I, I, my, I guess maybe mine can be road related too. um, people in, um, potholes just open up randomly, like giant ones, like sinkholes randomly in, uh, on the Philadelphia streets. So it always disrupts my ability to walk around. I would say mine's also technically road related, but in the winter when it snows and then you go the morning after you clear your driveway, you put in, you know, 30 minutes, at least maybe an hour, you're manually shovel your snow blowing, you're done. And then the snowplow finally comes through your neighborhood street because it's low priority and dumps all the snow at the end of your driveway. <laughs> I hate it with a passion because then you have to go back out there and it's just the heavy clunks of snow. <sighs> that is my new pet peeve. Um, and the last question I had, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Yeah, same. Good. Good answers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, we're going right at Kyle, your film review a blast from the past. Yes, it is black history month. So I'm just going to watch a lot of black movies. So the first one I'm going to go with is black Panther, the superhero movie in the Marvel cinematic universe. And I had not watched it since 
Avengers Endgame came out. So it was kind of interesting to see how that went. But overall, I would say it was a fun movie to watch just because you don't need to follow the whole Marvel universe to understand what's going on and to get. I mean, there's some inside jokes that you would pick up, but otherwise it's as its own standalone film. Very straightforward to watch. Love the music, love the soundtrack and visually it's great. I think it's just the cast was fantastic and it's a very solid movie, seven out of 10, but I would personally give it a 10, but I can understand if people don't like it as much because I mean, it's not like the most groundbreaking storyline. It's kind of like hero learns newfound powers and responsibilities. Villain comes in, wants a shot at the hero. Hero has to beat the villain. So it's not anything groundbreaking, but yeah, I would say seven or eight out of 10. Wonderful. Solid seven or eight out of 10. That's a high recommendation. Uh, I don't know who hasn't seen Black Panther yet, but I haven't. Good. Oh, I haven't. there you go, Riley. It's a good suggestion. I'll, um, I'll watch it during the All-Star game. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, Riley. Uh, I think it's time for Vulture Talk. What is the situation with Giannis's long-term contract? Giannis sent it to Kumpo. Giannis. 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 I agree that it's time for Vulture Talk. Uh, pretty quick, two quick ones here. We're going to revisit the Knicks because like the rising and the setting of the suns, we got to talk about the Knicks every week and some sort of connection to uh, our good friend Masai Ujiri, which... Uh, I don't know what the hell the name of the dude was who was supposedly running things for the Knicks was before, but he got canned uh, this week. And uh, they hired some other agent to be their president of something or another, or like, I don't know if he's going to be the GM. But because the spot cleared open, of course, they gave everybody an excuse to mention that Masai Ujiri uh, could potentially go there for whatever reason. Uh, and the two shout outs, actually, both of them come from the Bill Simmons podcast or the BS podcast, whatever the hell it's called. Uh, earlier in the week, he was talking about how if Masai Ujiri really wanted to like cement himself as one of the greatest executives ever, he would go to the Knicks and try to turn that around, which, okay, it's like everybody's arguments. Maybe, I don't know if Bill has any sort of ideas inside. The second one was, I believe, on Bill Simmons' uh, trade deadline podcast. They were talking about how the key of whatever Miami was trying to do looked like they were potentially trying to keep the cap space open to go for Giannis in 2021 if he becomes a free agent. Uh, and the idea is you already have Jimmy Butler under contract, who is like your second guy, and then you have all the cap space. Miami's awesome, which no doubts there. Miami is an awesome city. Uh, so it's the usual, like, Miami might have cap space, and because it's a cool city and LeBron went there once, uh, maybe other guys will go there as well. So, uh, you know, it two smaller vulture talks here but it, again just stoking the flames i'm surprised miami hasn't been it's probably because of the cap situation but i think we're going to probably see them ramping up a lot more over the past next like 12 to 16 months to see are they the destination that Giannis might choose so two little vulture talk things but nothing too consequential i'm glad uh, you what uh, you have such an antenna for that stuff it's um it's just impressive so it's, thank it's you actually for really annoying because i have to submit myself <laughs> to all that but uh yeah I, my, I got my ear to the ground when people start talking mess those vultures i hear them so uh i'm on it all the time well on behalf of all of us we thank you um for for accepting all of that pain um all right guys let's look at the week ahead um, Riley, you and I, uh, feel like, I feel like we got a little egg on our faces for having a little more pessimistic look this past week, um, for the, for the games, but we can, uh, we have another chance here to redeem ourselves. So, uh, Monday, the Bucks face the Kings and then Wednesday they face the Pacers and they are off for the all-star break. So 
Uh, Riley, you can start. What's your prediction for this week? I'm going to double down on the pessimism. No, I, <laughs> I actually, I will say, man, I'd have to, I want to go look back and see how the Bucks did right before the All-Star break last year. I think they'll wax the Kings. Uh, and maybe I'll say they'll lose to the Pacers because uh, the Pacers, well, I don't know, Oladipo looks really rusty. Maybe I, they'll go 2 0. Why not? Because they're still, Indiana's really trying to make Oladipo happen right now. It's not happening because he just came back from that knee injury. So it's like nobody's fault that that's the case, but it's uh, it's a lot of depot minutes uh, in pretty critical situations. So I would say 2-0, and um, maybe they'll loaf around again on Wednesday because it's right before the break, but that's like the same for every team in the league. So uh, Indiana will also have to fight the loafing-itis before the break. So we'll see how it goes, but 2-0. and Kyle? I mean, they're playing the Kings, so that's an easy win. And yeah, I'll go 2-0. Easy win against the Kings. Indy might be interesting just to see how do they match up now that they have Oladipo. But I still think the Bucks will comfortably win. So two and zero, go team. Let's go Bucks. I'm going to go two and zero as well. Uh, perfect record across the board for these two Ws. So um, let's uh, we're going to call it, guys. Then then the Bucks obviously will go on their All Star break. Um, we'll get to watch them in all the festivities this weekend, and then uh, we will return <laughs> um, with more games uh, the following week. So uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at BrewHoop. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, of course, if you haven't already. Share it with all your friends. Go to BrewHoop.com for all of our coverage of this team. And thank you so much for sticking it out with us and listening to uh, 50 episodes. For everyone that's been around this long, it's been uh, quite a pleasure and a delight to be able to continue this to this point. And uh, thanks for sticking around through this whole episode, too, <laughs> through the, the ups and downs of it. So uh, talk to you again soon. Bye.